0: not sure all the adults could have answered those questions. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Can we just make a deal? I don't know if you noticed, but I preach from a manuscript and it's very difficult to judge when you're writing a sermon how long reading the manuscript is going to take. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna do the whole sermon today, and if we get out of here at one o'clock, then so be it. <laughs> okay, deal. All right. So the text for today's message is actually First and Second Timothy, the whole thing. But we're going to to look at um, a specific passage. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3 to 14. I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I might be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What you've heard from me, Keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. I'm going to start with someone else's words today. Walter Wink. He says, on the night before I preach, I pace back and forth in my room, mumbling to myself, testing these thoughts, scorning most, exalting one or two, investing in those. I grow breathless as I pace, I make strange noises, but the house must be silent. And the mighty God must stand by me to save me because there surely will come great waves of doubt to drown me. And then I will sputter, Lord help me. And I gasp, what do you want me to say? Not all the scriptural interpretation in the world will save me from this nighttime ride on stormy water. I am going to preach and I get scared In the few hours of sleep, I dream. In my dreams, I arrive at church as people are leaving. Had that one. I can't find my sermon notes. Had that one. Or smack in the middle of my sermon, I notice that I am in my underwear. (laughs) Or the worst, I've forgotten totally what I have planned to say. You see, it is not only a function of our intellects to preach. We are doing more than passing pure thought to the people. Our souls are required of us that we believe what we say. Moreover, to believe means that we have ourselves experience what we declare. It's what the people expect. It is a part of our personal histories, our real joy and suffering, real in our pain, in our forgiveness, in our grace, in our sense of freedom in Christ. And so we become standing evidence of what we preach and the whole of us, soul and mind and body and experience participates in the holy moment we call preaching. I can't hide in my cape of authority and still persuade the people of a dear incarnate embracing Jesus. I must be vulnerable. I cannot ever be wholly nerveless before this task since the very purpose and the passion of it involves my love. I preach because I love. I love twice. These two loves define my being. First, I love God with my whole heart and with my soul and with my mind and with my strength. I have nothing more important in all the world to do than to communicate to anyone and everyone that the one I love completely loves them. And yet here too I wonder and quake Am I worthy even to whisper his name? But I have no choice to try because I also love my people too. These faces, these eyes, with a sharp, peculiar, peculiar personal love toward them, I am called and I must give my very best. And so on Saturday night, I worry, will they hear it? Will they let the hard word hurt them, the good word heal them, the strong word lead and redeem them? Will I speak it in such a way that they will receive it from me? O oh, people, the depth of my love Is my fear for you. And so I pace. I found this piece of writing over 30 years ago when I was a young pastor. I've used it when I teach preaching classes, I've shared it with other preachers. It certainly expresses well the seriousness of the task of preaching. Don't get me wrong, preaching can be fun. But it is also rather serious because it is rather eternal. And I've been pondering this week and I realized something. I have spent over 25 years teaching people how to be pastors. I think about it all the time. It consumes me even when I'm not teaching, the weight of preparing pastors particularly to preach. And it hit me this week. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on how to treat pastors. The Bible addresses it. But what pastor in their right mind, would stand up here and tell you how to treat them. Maybe one who's about to get kicked out, has nothing to lose, but not established pastors, certainly not a new pastor, even if she or he might be tempted to just shake the people up at first, probably not wise. Preaching about how to treat a pastor is absolutely impossible without being accused of heinous self-interest or downright insanity. But here's the deal. I'm not your pastor, although I feel like it, and so I think I might just be able to get away with this. 1st and 2nd Timothy are part of what are called the pastoral letters. In some significant ways, these two letters look a lot like the rest of the epistles by Paul. In other ways, they are different. For one, they address an individual and not a congregation. I think that Paul says certain things in certain ways when he knows that a letter would be read before everyone or maybe even passed around to different churches. But here, this is a letter for Timothy's eyes only. We should feel a little embarrassed about reading his mail. Paul is very personal and very honest with Timothy, not only about what Timothy is facing, but what he is facing. Second Timothy, we think, might be the last letter that Paul writes. We do know that he is in prison and has little hope that he will survive this time. And so we find in this letter rich reflections about Paul's ministry, his living for Christ, and his dying for Christ. And we find, in a sense, Paul's last efforts to instill in his adopted son, Tim, the values and morals and power that has sustained him. What is the occasion for these letters from Paul? In both letters, he addresses the same issues. Timothy has been in Ephesus, pastoring the church there, and it is an absolute mess. Power-hungry people are running the place. Other preachers are preaching so that they will receive large sums of money. There is heresy circling around. False teachings are abundant. People are flaunting their wealth and dressing to the max for church so that they can lord it over those who are poorer. There is dissension, division, distraction, all with devastating results. And Timothy is being beat up, criticized, belittled, and shamed. His association with Paul, which we might think would give him a reputation, really is making the situation worse. Corrupt folks are in positions of leadership who teach wrong things and live immorally. In 2 Timothy, Paul is attempting to do two primary things. First, Timothy is extremely discouraged, Paul acknowledges Timothy's tears and his suffering. And Paul is reminding him to be strong, to be courageous, to keep the faith. Second, Paul is telling Timothy not to be ashamed, especially not to be ashamed of Paul's imprisonment. You see, it seems that people in the church have made a mistake which has been made ever since the Old Testament and has been made every day since. Here's the mistake. Thinking that suffering proves that you are wrong somehow. If you are suffering, you are not in God's favor. And so the teachers at Ephesus are mocking Paul for his suffering. Surely God has abandoned him. If God were really with him, he would not suffer, he would not be imprisoned, and he certainly would not be facing execution. Have they swayed Timothy even a bit to doubt Paul? And so Paul reminds him don't be timid, stand up to them. Remember where your security is in Christ, not in circumstances. Paul says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. And to Timothy, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and in me." Paul was a pastor. Timothy was a pastor. And in a way, First and Second Timothy is our text. And so, as I said, I'd like to spend some time this morning in how to treat a pastor. But first, let's think about what a pastor does, who a pastor is. And so I want to talk about the pastoral office because no one ever does it outside of a classroom. First of all, Pastors are called to be shepherds to the people. So this is where we insert Heather's sermon to the kids, which she did so very well, and the kids answered. What does it mean to shepherd the people? Shepherds protect the sheep lead the sheep, guide the sheep, wrap up the wounds of the sheep and goes and searches for the sheep when they get lost. Pastors are called to be shepherds to the people. They are also called to be priests. Now, in our tradition, we don't tend to think about calling our pastors priests. But it's what it really means. What is a priest? First of all, a priest is the one who prays for the people, to represent the people before God. The priest is the one who administers the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. And the tradition of the church for the last 2,000 years has been that only those who are ordained as priests serve communion. My students ask often, why? And I say, because that's the way it has always been. (laughs) Why go against the tradition of the church? But in a very real sense, it is the priest's role to take the elements, to consecrate the elements, and distribute them to the people in order to feed the people the body and blood of Christ. And there is a sacredness to sacraments that at least the church has said should be distributed by the priest. And pastors are called to be prophets. Not only are we called to represent the people to God, We are also called to represent God to the people. We are called to preach, to challenge people to become better than they are through grace, to grow. They are called to evangelize, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not yet know him. And they are called to preach and call out injustice wherever it is, very much in the model of the prophets of old. And as prophets, they are called to envision for us to see a bigger picture, to see the eternal in the ordinary, and to lead us into what God would have us to do. Those are some of the elements of what a pastor does and is. Now I'm going to tell you what it does not mean. To be a pastor does not mean that that individual is perfect. Pastors, just to remind you, are human beings who might also stumble and fall at times. Pastors are not absolutely perfect, but they are sincere and genuine and authentic in their desire to represent Jesus. Pastors are also not called to be the entire body of Christ. We think of Paul in 1 Corinthians and all those body parts. A pastor, it's not intended for them to do everything in the church. Although sometimes they may have to. When I was a very young pastor at the age of 26, I went to a small congregation in Maine, very small and quite musically untalented. (laughs) And so every week I would get up there and I would give the invocation and the call to worship and then I'd walk over to the piano and lead the hymns and then come back over and pray a pastoral prayer And then lead a chorus or two on my guitar. And then preach the sermon, and we all went home. And then on Saturday night, I was the janitor of the church. (laughs) Kind of because I had to be. But it's not God's design, and you know that. The pastor isn't supposed to do everything, you are. Why are you laughing? I don't know why you're laughing. (laughs) And the pastor is not supposed to be our bellhop. Let me think about this for just a minute. Let's think about what a pastor does. Um, They teach you in preaching classes in seminary that we are to spend one hour of study for every minute in the pulpit. So that's at least 20 hours. How much time do pastors spend on administration? Let's give them 10 hours. They should probably have more time than this, but they pray. So let's give them five hours to pray for us. Most congregations like a pastor to do pastoral calling. The minimum would be about five hours a week. What about pastoral counseling? Let's add another five, depending on what kind of crises we're in. Senior pastors have pastoral staff that they need to communicate with. Let's give them three hours for that. And then all that they do on Sundays, preaching two or three services, sometimes teaching Sunday school out to lunch with us, Sunday night services when they happen, or small groups, and always having the responsibility that goes along with it that everything goes smoothly. Let's give them seven hours for Sunday. Unexpected stuff, five hours. What if each one of us called to check in? That's astronomical. Let's think 10% of us have a half an hour conversation with the pastor. That's 35 hours a week. Well, I have just given our pastors 90 hour work weeks. And some of them are crazy enough to do it. What am I saying? One conclusion we need to reach is that pastors cannot be in all places at all times. They cannot be where we want them at every moment. And they cannot be all things to all people, particularly in a congregation this size. And yet, are we killing them off? Statistics tell us that 20,000 pastors will leave the ministry, not just their church, leave the ministry each year in the United States. And much of the reasons circle around burnout and the harsh environment, yes, harsh environment in which they work. Which brings me to my main point. What is the body's responsibility to the pastor? We're really good at thinking of all the responsibilities the pastor has to us. Do we have anything reciprocal to offer? Several ideas arise out of Paul's correspondence with Timothy. First of all, do not harm your pastor Not only is Paul's life being threatened, so is his mission. And the trials that he faces through the past continue. And he takes the time to name the guy. Every church has the guy. Alexander is named in chapter 4, who did him great harm. But even more than that, Alexander continues to resist Paul's words, and he warns Timothy to be very weary of him. Also, great disruption has come from others that Paul considers to be charlatans, he names them, who are persuasive, targeting the weak. Paul says they are making progress in deluding the people. And so after a lifetime of literally spilling himself out for the sake of the gospel in his final days, does Paul face at the end not only personal rejection, but the realization of the utter failure of the church at Ephesus? I'm sure it broke his heart. Do we really understand the overwhelming sense of responsibility that our pastors have, that they live with every day, what they shoulder? Particularly after pouring hours and hours into their sermons with deep study and deep prayer, and then preaching it to the point of spilling themselves out in vulnerability that is needed to communicate effectively. Can you imagine going to the office on Monday morning and opening the email that harshly criticizes the sermon? It's incredibly painful. Now, I believe that email has made our lives so much easier in the last 30 years. Think of all the time and all the postage that we save. But it has made it far too easy to sit behind a screen and say harsh words, things that we would never say to a person's face. Small people bolster themselves with words sent from keyboards. If you have a criticism for your pastor, do the right thing. I'm going to throw this in here for weight. Do the biblical thing and make a face-to-face appointment. This goes for everything in the church. Now I'm going to meddle from the sermon to the worship music to the technology and to any other ministry in the church done by pastors. Why do we think we have the right to be judge and jury? And by all means, never write anonymously. We've learned to throw those in the trash unopened. It goes against everything we believe about Christian relationships. Why do some of us assume that it is okay to beat up on the pastor and act unchristianly as if they are exceptions to the command to love? Secondly, Do not be ashamed of your pastors, and do not shame your pastors. If Timothy has grown cowardly in his work, Paul concludes, it must be because he has become ashamed or embarrassed of the true gospel is Timothy's own suffering, making him waver in his loyalty to the task of preaching and leading and his loyalty to Paul. Do not shame your pastors. In case you have never heard this, criticism, which can be constructive, is directed at a person's behavior, shaming, is directed at a person's character. It is one of the most damaging things we can do to each other. It is incredibly destructive and difficult to get beyond. Do not shame your pastor. And in the letter... Paul expresses deep pain that he feels abandoned by the people. In contrast to other letters in which Paul expresses genuine hope and release from prison, there are no expectations here. No more hope for human vindication, just divine. And he expresses that he is experiencing abandonment and rejection from his people, even from his inner circle. He says that everyone in Asia has abandoned him. No one stood by him in his first defense. He places, it seems, all his hopes in the fact that Timothy is coming to see him. But Paul feels deeply alone and abandoned. A sense of abandonment has deep emotional impact. You may find this strange because it seems like we're always surrounded by people. But pastoring is a very isolating profession. Where do they find their sense of community? Who is safe? Who is not How much of themselves can they really reveal before a congregation before they get angry at them for being human? And it is often assumed that someone else is loving them, loving on them, taking care of them. When in fact everyone in the congregation thinks someone else in the congregation is doing it. I remember speaking to a friend of mine of a significantly large church who was there a number of years. He said he could count on one hand the times that he was invited to someone's home. And what would you think if a pastor would say, pay attention to me, you wouldn't stand for it. Pastors are often lonely. So here are the don'ts. Don't harm your pastors. Don't shame your pastors. Do not abandon your pastors. But there are some do's as well. Encourage encourage your pastors. One of the reasons that Paul is writing to Timothy is to address his cowardice, his timidity. It's understandable that Timothy is feeling this way with the church beating him up all the time. Why would he put himself back in that situation? Why not just shake the dust from his feet and not return to Ephesus? But Paul encourages him in multiple ways, puts courage in him. He reminds him that God is faithful. God has been faithful to his grandmother, to his mother, and to him. And God will be faithful in the future. It is by grace that Timothy endures suffering. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that he will find courage. That Paul could write all of this is noble. That he wrote it imprisoned, expecting his execution, shows us the letter is inspired to love and take the time to know that Timothy, to tell Timothy, to tell Timothy that he loves them, that he loves him. And one of the greatest ways to encourage, to in Courage, your pastors, is to be thankful for them. and to thank them. I hear all the time from you how wonderful our pastoral staff is. You say it all the time. I want to make sure you say it to them. Thank them. Respect them. <clears throat> Today in our society, it is marked that we come even into the sanctuary with a spirit of defensiveness. We believe we are right about everything, which makes us thoroughly unteachable. One result is that we have set ourselves up as our own authority. We are under no one, and we get to decide for ourselves what truth is with no sense of accountability to our church or its leaders. I read of a study in the 1950s where they ranked the respect given to various professions. And you can imagine that doctors are high on the list Pastors were also high on the list. The study has been recently redone in terms of how we respect pastors in our society. They just hover above the used car salesman. There's no respect in society for pastors. I'm hoping that that there is respect in the church. For pastors. And finally, we pray. And we pray. And we pray some more. And we love them. Not just in word, but in action. We actively love them. Because as first and second Timothy shows us. To be called to be a pastor is a call to suffering. And so they need your prayers, your consistent, heartfelt, ardent prayers as they try to wrangle us all. I am not your pastor. So I thought I might get away with this. But I am your pastor in this. I have been ordained by the laying on of hands and the taking of vows to preach the word, but also to administer the sacraments. And so as we turn our thoughts toward the sacrament this morning, I want to do a little teaching moment. In the Wesleyan tradition, the sacraments, particularly of Holy Communion, are a means of grace. And Wesley said it is a means of lots of different kinds of grace. providential grace saving grace, and sanctifying grace. We don't do it a lot around here, but the Church of the Nazarene believes in the baptism of babies. What are we celebrating when we do that? that God is promising to the child to do everything that God can do to draw that child into a relationship and to keep that child safe. We call it prevenient grace. Sometimes we think that you have to be of a certain character or a certain intellect Sometimes we think that you have to totally understand the sacrament in order to take it. And so sometimes we, we look at children taking the sacrament as, "Oh, whoa, that doesn't feel right. How many of you fully understand the meaning of the sacrament? It's Family Sunday. If you would like your children to receive the elements, please take them. It is not inappropriate. It is a means of provenient grace in their lives and sanctifying grace in ours. And so I invite us to think a little differently today. I'll ask those who are going to help us with communion to come forward at this time. But let me pray a prayer, first of all, for our participation. Holy and loving God, I thank you this morning that you give us not just a bunch of words, but you give us living models people like Paul in Timothy's life, people like pastors in a congregation's life. But also, Lord, you are the greatest model of all, of what it means to love. That you so loved us, that you sent your son into the world to live a life before us. ultimately to suffer and to die for us. And these before us are symbols of your death, the breaking of your flesh, the spilling of your blood. And so I pray over these elements today that they would become for us the body and blood of Christ that we might receive whatsoever grace we need today. And as we've heard for many years, make us what we eat, make us into little Christs, who witnessed to the world of what love did and what the extent of love can do. And so we commit ourselves to these moments, open our hearts as we receive these elements as a symbol of receiving you. In Christ's name, amen. Make sure everyone has received. night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And do this and remember me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said to them, this is the blood of my new covenant shed for you. Drink all of it and remember me. Let's eat the bread together and drink the cup. Me, if you will, and receive the benediction for today. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's an empty chair in the front of the sanctuary today, and I have no idea why. I don't, I, there it is. And I thought in the middle of the sermon, well, Maybe I could place the new pastor there while well, he or she looks at you. But the Holy Spirit is always our present guest. The Holy Spirit is with us and in us and among us. And so I pray today, may the Holy Spirit who lives within you work through you so a world that desperately needs to know Jesus and his love may see it in you go in peace amen Amen.